Hey, I'm Angeline Francis. And I'm Al Donato. You're listening to Born and Raised from HuffPost Canada. Born and Raised is a podcast about the lives of second-generation Canadians. Every episode, we'll be exploring perspectives unique to the children whose parents were the first in their families to immigrate here. And I know if you're hearing the phrase second generation, you're kind of thinking, what exactly does that mean? Because, you know, there's a lot of confusion about that term. For our own purposes, we're going by Statistics Canada, which defines second generation as someone who was born in Canada, but who has at least one parent born outside. And this season, we're serving up food stories. Why food? Well, the question, have you eaten yet, is basically the immigrant version of saying hello. So let's say hello to Amir Ahmed. He's got some very strong feelings about biryani. It's true. I never order biryani and I don't at at Indian restaurants because I've been burned too many times in the past. And I do not allow my loved ones to be subjected to the inequity, the fraud that is poorly made biryani. It's a mixed rice dish consisting of rice, meat, and spices, uh, popular throughout the Indian subcontinent. There are many regional variations that use different meats, different spices. So when I am expressing this pickiness, it's not just a matter of high quality. That's not to say that every single restaurant is doing it wrong, just that it's uh, it's not the biryani that I grew up with and the one that I recognize as my own. Amir is pretty hardcore about biryani, and we'll see how that plays out later on. But hey, we get it. There are just some dishes that cannot be replicated. Or can they? It may be the case for for anybody really, but I know for sure second generation kids always have a one dish story. There's always that one meal that is their favorite, that they go home and they want their mom to make immediately, that they, (laughs) for me, my mom will like bribe my brother to come home (laughs) saying I'm making oxtail. Oh, that would get me too. That would get me too. What's your one dish? I gotta say that my one dish is a dish that's called palabok. It's a Filipino food that looks like it should be a cheesy pasta, but you bite into it and it's like shrimp sauce. It's got like green onions, chincharon, which is like a pork, fried pork, Uh, rinds and it's also got a bit of shrimp on it Uh, the reason why it's my that one dish is because it's so closely tied to a memory I have of going to a convenience store chatting up like Marcy who was the owner and her serving me up like gigantic takeout containers and me just stuffing my face in the convenience store like finishing a full meal standing up for me, mine is red pea soup. It's um, it's a Jamaican dish, and my mom has made it ever since I was little. It's really uh, a thick stew. Like Jamaican soups tend to look more like um, more like a stew because of everything that it's made with. So there's uh, starchy dumplings, there's yams, there's sweet potato, uh, cuts of beef, pigtail, uh, which is always it really shocked me the first time I went to the pot and I pulled it out and it actually was a tail. <laughs> But it's delicious nonetheless, and it's made with like thyme, pimento, allspice, so it's super flavorful, and it could be really spicy if the pepper bursts in it, uh, which is something my mom always used to warn me about when I was little. I find it really interesting how for both of our stories, it's not just the flavor, although these dishes are tasty, it's the fact that our memories are like evoked upon tasting. Yeah, exactly, and it's kind of like a little taste of our, our family's heritage. 
So Al, you've been spending the last few months talking to people about their one dish stories, right? Yes, I have. And there's actually one that I really want to share with you. But heads up, it's kind of a ghost story. A ghost story? It actually comes from an artist named Kumari Giles. Their parents are from Sri Lanka and Scotland, and they met in the Caribbean. One thing before we start, actually. Kumari is non-binary and uses the pronouns they, them, and their. I consider myself a spiritual person, um, not someone that necessarily is religious, but I do feel very connected and open myself up to an awareness of ancestors and spirit that exists beyond physical body. One of those spirit beings that is with me a lot of the time is my grandmother. I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with my grandmother. Actually, that was probably where we spent 80% of our time together. Particularly when I'm cooking Sri Lankan food and katasambal, that's when I feel like the, the channel is more open. Katasambal specifically is a mixture that is basically all onion. So it's finely uh, chopped onion with chili, lime, and salt, and a little bit of black pepper. She can cut onions so tiny. It was actually the only thing that she was able to continue doing as she got sicker and sicker. Like when we would cook together, when she didn't know who I was really, um, she thought I was my mother um, because that's where she was in her brain memory. She would still be able to cut an onion and do it like perfectly. I think about her every time I cut an onion and sometimes that manifests in me feeling her presence there. Um, and sometimes it's me just really thinking about her a lot. Often it is me feeling like her. And there are moments where I'm cutting an onion where I'm like, these are not even my hands doing this right now. This is fully like, I'm somehow channeling her spirit to cut these onions. And it's often when I cut them really tiny. And so katasambal was also significant to me and also something that she would make specifically um, when I would come over. I paid Kumari a visit to see how they make katasambal. And just as expected, I wasn't the only guest to drop by. Their grandmother was in the kitchen too. When I started to actually cut the onions, I, yeah, I was really like tender feeling and nervous and I was like oh my gosh ah what am I doing and then as soon as I had peeled all the onions and started to cut them felt like a lot of relief and like there have been times where I feel like it's not my hands at all cutting the onions whereas this time it felt like I was being assisted which felt really nice so I felt like she was she was here but she was like but this is your thing you're doing this thing, not me. That kind of wave of relief and certainty came like 30 seconds before you came in the door, which was really nice. Usually it's ground between two stones, the onion mixed with the chili and salt and lime. And so my 
living in an urban city without access to a stone grinder technique is to do it in a Ziploc bag. So I just peeled and cut a bunch of onions real tiny and now I'm rolling and cutting a lime that I'm gonna squish into the bag. And did half of one, but I think I need a little bit more. That's probably good. You might have noticed that Kumari isn't really using teaspoons or cups for the measurements. That's because their grandmother had her own system. A handful of this thing, a pinch of this thing, just about enough until it's right. I'd be like, how much of this thing? She's like, you know, just like, just put a little bit. Oh no, it just needs a little bit more. And you're like, what? That was not a measurement. And so I'm now starting to call those things heart measurements. It made me really frustrated at the time, but now I fully understand. Heart measurements are something felt, not seen. But some things do need to be seen. For Kumari, that was their identity. Like I didn't grow up in Sri Lanka. I don't have access to the language. I don't have access to so many things. Yeah, she was very important in me gaining my connection to culture. And I think for me, it's also really different as a queer and trans person that um, there are so many complicated relationships with family and access to food. And for a while, I like didn't have a lot of contact or a great relationship with my immediate family and so um, my relationship to her is really important. Yeah, I think a lot of second gen folks and a lot of queer and trans folks like don't necessarily have those strong bonds with um, grandparents particularly because and this is a narrative that like exists in the world of like they're an older generation, they're not going to understand all this stuff and I think that yeah, that can be true sometimes, but also like my grandmother was way more supportive and accepting than um, my mother or my father. And I did speak to her about queer stuff, which I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. And her response was like, if you're happy, then I'm happy. Spicy, juicy. Salty. Okay, you wanna try some? Of course. So many things that I, I know to be true about my culture um, lie in my time that I spent with her. I think that is the best reason to be happy cutting onions. I just love how everything about this dish, from the ingredients to how they're prepared, it just shows how much Kamari's grandmother cared. It really emphasizes how that one dish can strengthen our bonds with a loved one, whether they're physically here or not. Mm, so true. These one dish stories can remind you of a particular person, like Kamari's grandmother, or it could also remind you of a time in your life. And our next story is about how a favorite dish is a reminder of surviving hard times. It comes from Paul Taylor. He runs a nonprofit group that fights food insecurity. It's a cause that Paul cares about, in part because he's lived through it. 
I was born in downtown Toronto, uh, and my mother, she is from a tiny island in the Caribbean, kind of a connection of two islands, actually, St. Kitts and Nevis. Paul has very fond memories of his childhood home's kitchen. So we listened to a lot of oldies while we were cooking, but she also had a love for Calypso. We were laughing, we were singing. I have um, very vivid memories of the noises of the food, the pots and the pans clanging, um, the oven door opening, the fridge opening, um, all of those sounds. I, I can still remember much of many of them to this day. When we didn't have food in the house, everything changed. It was much quieter. I think um, we probably avoided each other a little bit more. There was a lot more tension. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure my mother must have felt much more defeated and not sure what to do. So growing up, we didn't have a lot of food, actually. You know, I was raised by a single mom that was on social assistance. You know, there were days where I went to school where there just wasn't lunch. As soon as I was old enough, I was leaving the playground um, and telling my friends that I liked to go on long walks by myself. But really, it was hiding the fact that I had no food to eat and I didn't want them to know and I didn't want them to judge me or to kind of put that shame upon me. Groceries were determined by what was cheapest, not by what Paul's family really wanted to eat. Caribbean ingredients were especially challenging to buy because items in the ethnic aisle were rarely on sale. We know that food can play such a comforting role for folks. I think for my mother, it really meant that she didn't have access to the food that made her feel comfortable amidst all this change. Uh, for me, it, like I say, it, it really meant that I didn't have an opportunity to engage in that kind of dialogue with my mother. There are very few recipes um, that I can think of that are typical to St. Kitts. But there was one exception. One of the first things my mother taught me how to make, and that was banana fritters, like a fried banana pancake. And those were uh, a real saving grace at times. Even in high school, I remember um, not having something to eat, but by then I had learned how to make banana fritters. The ingredients were mainly some smushed up banana, egg, sugar, flour, baking powder, um, cinnamon, nutmeg, that sort of thing. So mainly things that we had around the house, except for the bananas, we'd find some cheap bananas. I remember coming to school sometimes with big Tupperware filled with banana fritters that I had made either that morning or the night before and sharing it with all of my friends. And I think that's probably one of the only dishes that um, because of its economic accessibility, its affordability, I was able to learn to make from my mother and then be able to share it with um, my friends and people in my life. Paul is making sure children growing up like he did won't have to go hungry through his job at Foodshare Toronto. They work with schools to provide breakfasts for students, including where Paul went to elementary school. But I had to know, does he still eat banana fritters? My apartment doesn't have the greatest ventilation, so I'm mindful of uh, anything that I fry in, in my apartment. Um, but I do miss them, and I think if I ever really have a really, really bad day, something tells me that I would reach for that comforting food, those banana fritters, um, and uh, cook them up. I haven't in a while, though. That's good. Yes. That's good. Exactly. <laughs>
That's so sweet. My my family's Jamaican, so we make banana fritters too, and we make saltfish fritters. It's really such a nice comfort food. My dad always makes it. How does your dad make it? He, he he's kind of like Kamari's grandmother. He doesn't measure. Sometimes if you put in a little too much of one thing, it'll like absorb some of the oil that you fry it in and make it kind of greasy or sometimes it's perfect and nice and fluffy. But, you know, you, you eat it regardless. And yeah. It's always really good. Yeah. Banana fritters. Oh, OK. So I've been thinking about Amir, who we started the episode with and his strict rules about biryani. Is that for real? Oh, yeah. A loved one spoke to us and confirmed that, yes, Amir forbids anyone from eating biryani unless it's from an official list of providers. And who's on the list? It's pretty much just Amir's family. (laughs) My name is Karina Abusayf. I am Amir's fiance, and I do not have any Indian heritage, and I love biryani. It's been taken away from me. (laughs) I mean, maybe one day... When you're gone on a business trip or something, I'll call up like our local Indian food place and order a giant dish of biryani just by myself and just like eat it in victory, like in front of our TV. Or you can call my mom. But biryani takes like six hours to make. I'm not gonna call your mom and say, make me biryani. She's making it this Monday. I won't be there. I'll be working. (laughs) This is how it plays out. (laughs) Amir's devotion to his family's signature dish is definitely because he grew up on it, but it's also because the type of biryani they make is a regional specialty. My background is mixed. My mom's family is from uh, Bosnia, and my uh, dad's family is from uh, India, Pakistan, the the whole Asian diaspora uh, type of thing, although he himself was born in the UK. It's a very popular dish, especially among my, my family and my kind of, I guess, specific community of India, which is, uh, I guess you could say, Hyderabadi. Uh, that's, you know, people from the Hyderabad region and uh, region in India, and that's the type of biryani that we make. Our Hyderabadi biryani is generally considered to be the crown jewel of all of the different biryani subtypes. There is no one flavor that is more powerful than any others. It's, uh, uh, it's very delicate. It should be like, it's like a party in your mouth, and every, every good spice on the planet has been invited. That's the best way to describe it. I can't really go in terms of specific flavors because there's no overarching uh, boss in the dance that is biryani. The dance. The dance, yes. What kind of dance would biryani be? One of those ones where everyone's in a circle holding hands and uh, singing. Like kindergarten glass. Yeah. Yeah? Come all the people now, everybody. everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's about, yeah, that's about it. Yes. That's the song. We decided to see if Amir's hardcore stance could be changed. So, I went to Ah. a place down the street. I said, hey, you have biryani? They said yes. It just so happens that we got Hyderabadi biryani. That's the same kind from his family's region. This smells appropriate. Am I allowed to eat it? The color looks... Let me test it. You're nodding enthusiastically. Yes, you are allowed to eat this. This is okay. this is correct. Mm. I'm so happy you're taking multiple mm-hmm. bites. Mm-hmm. This is promising. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what I would say is, again, no one can make food like your family, like your aunts and your mm-hmm. mom, but I definitely recognize this as, as 
proper biryani. It is. I would recommend this is this is biryani. Is this to the me. first ever time though that this that's is, happened? This is the first ever time that this has happened. Your reaction is completely the opposite of what I was expecting. I'm very pleased. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of Born and Raised. I'm Angeline Francis. And I'm Aldenado. If you've got room for seconds, That One Dish has more for you to tuck into. To see photos of our guests, read show notes, and the episode's transcript, you can visit HuffPost.ca. Born and Raised is produced by Aldenado and Stephanie Werner for HuffPost Canada. Executive producers Andre Lau and Lisa Young. Born and Raised is produced in Toronto, which falls under the land treaty known as Dish With One Spoon. It was agreed upon by the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee. In the spirit of that agreement, we acknowledge the Indigenous folks who have lived and are currently living here. We want to express our appreciation for the opportunity to share our food stories today. Stay tuned for our next episode, when we order from the family restaurant. My dad's restaurant was called Ming's, the oldest single-person owned and operated restaurant in Canada. So my dad worked for all of that time, 16 to 18 hours a day. Until our next episode, thanks for listening. Stay hungry.